If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4 this morning. We're going to be reading from verse 18. Verse 18 onward, down through the end of the chapter there, at verse 31. Once you have your Bibles open before you, we'll read from God's Word, and then afterwards we'll pray and ask for His help and blessings as we study His Word together. Exodus 4, beginning at verse 18. This is the Holy Word of God. Take care how you hear it, friends. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold... I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God, and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went, and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and did all the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, They bowed their heads and worshipped. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us this day. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Would you pray with me, please? Oh, Lord, we come to you and we pray for grace now as your word is before us. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to the church, your church, by it. And as we give ourselves over to its study Grant us understanding and help us to treasure up all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. One of my favorite devotional writers is the Puritan Matthew Henry. Many of you are likely familiar with his famous commentary on the whole Bible. Well, his father was a preacher by the name of Philip Henry, someone who had suffered greatly for the gospel. Philip Henry once declared, He is no fool who parts with that which he cannot keep, when he is sure to be recompensed with that which he cannot lose. Around that same time, another English Puritan by the name of John Flavel was known to say, he shall gain that which he cannot lose by parting with that which he cannot keep. 
And of course, your ears may have pricked up and you think, I know that phrase from somewhere. Most of us know that phrase because of Jim Elliot. Some 300 years later, the missionary martyr who went deep into the jungles of Ecuador to evangelize the Alca Indians, who was later killed by that same tribe, Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That principle propelled, of course, a new generation onto the mission fields. But that principle is not simply for the missionary. One of the fundamental struggles of the Christian life, and really the crux of our passage this morning, is that of what we might call gospel allegiance. Gospel allegiance and all of its implications. You remember the context of our story thus far, our passage. God has met Moses at the burning bush at Horeb or Sinai, the mountain of God. He's confronted him, he's humbled him, and God has called him into his service And Moses, remember, has offered every excuse under the sun, every excuse he could think of, but to no avail. Moses was going to be sent back to Egypt to be the human instrument by which God would deliver his covenant people out of slavery. The time has now come for Moses to go back to Egypt and to do what it is God actually called him to do and to say. And so if you look at our passage here in verses 18 to 31, you'll see that it falls, I think, into three simple sections, each of which underscore the principle of complete submission to the call and to the commands of God upon the life of his servant. First, you'll see in verses 18 to 23, we see what we might call allegiance to the Lord God as a total life claim. Allegiance to the Lord God as a total life claim. And then in verses 24, 25, and 26, allegiance to the Lord God, we see, is a matter of life and death. It is something serious, not merely hypothetical or theoretical, and certainly not something to be trifled with. Allegiance to the Lord God is a matter of life and death. And then verses 27 to 31, the surprising fruits of faithfulness. The surprising fruits of faithfulness. You see, the lesson for Moses and for us is that when God makes us his children and when he deploys us in his service, he claims us completely as his own. And that's a lesson that Moses needed to learn. That's a lesson we need to learn and ponder with all the implications that come from that. So let's think on these three things together for a few moments, friends. Let's think first. Verses 18 to 23. Allegiance to God, allegiance to the Lord God, is a total life claim. We've already seen that up till now, Moses has been arguing with God. We thought about that last week and the week previous. I don't know what to say, Lord. In fact, even if I knew what to say, no one will believe me when I tell them. Well, even if they, even if they did believe me, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a good public speaker anyway. I'm not equipped for the job. Please, please, just send somebody else. That was the last desperate excuse that Moses offered up there at the end. Now, of course, one wonders if Moses may have just been making this up. Dr. Wilborn and I were speaking about this last week. Moses says, Lord, I'm, I'm slow of speech. And yet Stephen, in the New Testament, in his tour de force Redemptive historical speech in Acts chapter 7, he says that Moses was mighty in words and mighty in deeds. Now, is it possible that Moses had just been making up desperate arguments, hoping to avoid God's call? Maybe. Maybe he really was slow of speech. Maybe he was a stutterer and a stammerer, but God supernaturally invigorated him when he stood before Pharaoh to speak clearly and profoundly and to do mighty deeds. Maybe so. But whatever the case may be, To every one of Moses' objections, remember, God responds with abundant provision. Abundant provisions of his grace and perfect promises of his presence until finally Moses is just left without any excuse at all. 
God has Moses cornered. But now, in verse 18 and following, the time has come to match words with actions. Notice the sequence of events as they unfold. 18 to 23. First, Moses seeks the permission of his father-in-law, Jethro. Verse 18. Please, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro gives him permission. Now, sometimes, as I was studying up for this text and comparing a variety of different commentaries, sometimes here the commentators are a little hard on Moses because he he doesn't reveal the full reason behind his desire to return to Egypt. He doesn't give Jethro the full disclosure of his motive to get back to Egypt. And it's true. He, as far as it was recorded here in the text, he's failed to mention anything about his encounter with God at the burning bush. And what did he say? What he did say about his mission was really only half the story of why he needed to get back to Egypt. He was not going back merely to see if his relatives were still alive. God had told them that they were, but he was going, more importantly, to rescue them from slavery. So why didn't Moses tell the whole truth? Perhaps he was afraid that if he went into too much detail, his father-in-law would start raising questions about his trip. Maybe that was the case. More likely, Moses still wasn't entirely sure himself about whether everything God said was true. Like many people, Moses, even as he hears God speak and he hears God assert these, these thunderous claims that he does, like many people, like many disciples, like you perhaps, Moses was wavering somewhere on the spectrum between faith and unbelief. But be that as it may, he was at least still walking down the path of obedience. There's a bittersweet moment to be taken in here. Family bonds brought under pressure because Moses seeks to be obedient to God's call. This man, Jethro, who became like a father to Moses, who who took him in, the daughter now having to depart her own homeland, the land of Midian, and her father and their children needing to leave their grandfather and the aunts and uncles and perhaps other cousins and friends behind, Obedience is rarely a glamorous thing. Obedience is rarely a glamorous thing. We see that here as these precious bonds of of family are sundered on account of the duty Moses has on account of his allegiance to the Lord God. So he secured Jethro's permission, which is what you did in ancient culture. You extended the courtesy to the patriarch of the family when you were getting ready to depart. Jethro was the elder man of the family, but even more than that, he was Moses' employer, after all. He extended him the courtesy. We're we're departing town, father-in-law. But notice in verse 19 that God has to come and prod Moses further. It looks as though Moses remains, almost lollygags in Midian. And who knows what the excuses were? Maybe maybe he was settling some last-minute family business. Maybe he was shearing the sheep just one last time. But whatever the reason, Moses is still in Midian. And so God comes to him and says, verse 19, And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Now, Moses, go back to Egypt. The men who sought your life are dead. They're now dead. God has to push, has to prod Moses, you see. The point being, Moses' obedience comes in fits and spurts. No doubt he's aware that this is going to be a challenging, a demanding, a costly mission. And his obedience, Moses' obedience, is slow. It's on again, off again. One minute, swelling 
confidence as the Lord God visits him and heralds these promises and, and surely breathe, he breathes deeply and he, his, 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 in his own bosom this power and this vigor that he feels as he's going to go march forth and stare down Pharaoh. And then the next moment, well, let me just, let me just check the sheep one more time before we, before we really head out on the highway. Let's just, one last round. Let's just, what's, what's the hurry, really? No, no. Sound familiar? Isn't that how we so often obey people of God? But Moses is here to be the redeemer of God's people, the savior of Israel. And praise God that our true and better redeemer from the greater exodus, namely the Lord Jesus, did no such wavering. He delivered us from bondage and he delivered us from death and he was unwaveringly committed to fulfilling his father's will. We're going to see that as we get through on in our studies in the Gospel of John, and as we start to delve into the great high priestly prayer that Dr. Wilborn is going to lead us through, and on into John 18 and 19 and following, that Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, and he is unwaveringly, unflinchingly committed to the mission with which his Father has entrusted him. Not my will, but yours be done, he cried in Gethsemane. Moses, the point being, Moses is something of a reluctant Savior, is he not? But not so with the Lord Jesus, the greater Moses. Well, Moses now finally, after much prodding and pushing from God, he begins the return journey. Notice in verse 22 that he he brings his family along with him. Verse 22, he loads his family on a donkey, and off they set from Midian to Egypt. He doesn't really know what's waiting for him when he gets there, or his family when they finally arrive. Surely he must have had some sense of the potential dangers and the risks involved, The fact that he seems to be dragging his feet and taking some good sweet time leaving Midian certainly seems to indicate that he knew the potential danger up ahead and he was a bit reluctant to come face to face with it, understandably so. But they are a family after all and the call of God rests upon the head of the household and so there is this secondary sense in which that call obligates the entire household. They're all involved. One commentator put it like this, That's really what our Savior meant when he said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's Matthew 10, verses 37 and following. The claims of Jesus Christ when he calls us to be his disciples and calls us into his service, this commentator says, the claim of Jesus Christ over us is total. There are no no no-go areas in your life if you are a disciple. He claims lordship over your future, over your family, over your finances, over your hopes and dreams. You are his. You are not your own. You've been bought at a price. Close quote. That's actually part of the point of verse 20, the the interesting little change of nomenclature there at the end of verse 20. See what it says there? So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Now back in verse 2 and verse 4 here in chapter 4, it's just a staff. Verse 2, the Lord said, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. Verse 4, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. But here, verse 20, it's no longer just a staff, but the staff of God. You see, back in verse 2 and verse 4, it's just a plain, ordinary, boring stick. Probably Moses' shepherding staff in all likelihood. 
But now it has changed. Notice it's now called the staff of God. Not because it's particularly special or it's some kind of magical talisman or magical stick, but because God has called Moses and promised to, do, to work and to do mighty things by this ordinary item. It, it, it's a wonderful in-text illustration, a metaphor for what is true of Moses. You see, Moses is still ordinary old Moses. He's still ordinary old Moses, fluctuating as he is between somewhere between faith and and unbelief. And you are still ordinary old you, believer in Jesus. But, but, if you are his, your identity has changed. Moses, called and claimed by God, is now the instrument of the power of God. And you, Christian, called from death to life and sealed by the blood of Christ, are now the servant of the mission and the agenda of God. Like that old wooden stick whose identity has changed, so too is Moses. And so are you, the servant and instrument in the hand of God. And by you, ordinary though you may be, by you, in his mighty power, God will work his purposes out and God will accomplish his will for you and for his church and in this world as you give yourself over to humble and obedient submission to him. Plain old Bob or Bill or Mary Lou, apologies to anybody who's named Bob or Bill or Mary Lou, but plain old Bob or Bill or Mary Lou, a plain old stick you may find yourself and perceive yourself to be. But when God claims you as his own, the staff of God, or closer to home, given our new covenant realities, the child of the most high God, when God claims you as his own, the work and the mission and the purpose to which he calls you is hardly ordinary. And it's hardly unremarkable. And then look down at verses 21 to 23. God tells Moses to demonstrate before Pharaoh all the signs and the miracles that God has given him the ability to do. And he was to ask that Pharaoh allow God's people to go free. But Moses is told ahead of time, before he even makes the journey and arrives in Egypt, that God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh will reject the word of God. This is a major theme in Exodus, and so we're going to have to come back and think about it more in detail in the future. But for now, let's simply notice that God tells Moses that there will be a final confrontation between the false and deluded potency of Pharaoh and the true and absolute lordship and sovereignty that belongs only to God Almighty. God's power and reach extends, Moses is being told, as far as the response of the human heart. And the word, the, the human heart's response to the word and the message of God. You see, he will harden Pharaoh's heart, God will, and the battle will be had. If Pharaoh will not let Israel go, God's firstborn, Israel, then God will slay Pharaoh's firstborn. Nothing is beyond God's potency and sovereignty and reach, not even Pharaoh's own stubborn heart. A lesson that Pharaoh needs to learn at so costly a price. So, as Moses broods over these things, traveling along with his family, mounted on a donkey, and no doubt feels increasingly burdened under the weight and the seriousness of all that's going to take place, Moses would have cried out with the Apostle Paul, if he could, Who is sufficient for these things, Lord God? And that's precisely the point. That is precisely the point that God has been making to Moses ever since chapter 3. Moses, you're not sufficient for the task. You are not up to the task. You are inherently insufficient. But I am that I am 
I am sufficient, and I can make you sufficient as a minister, as a servant in my service. The staff of God, by which God promised to do mighty things, Moses carried with him as a tangible token and reminder of God's faithfulness and promise. Some commentators want to, want to draw the parallel between that sign and token to the signs and tokens we have even in the New Covenant. Not to go so far as to call that staff a sacrament, but is it not serving the same purpose as the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? Tangible signs and tokens. Tangible realities that you can see and taste and touch and feel and smell to remind you that God is ever faithful, even when we are faithless, as we read from Second Timothy chapter 2. How Moses needed that tangible sign and token that God is ever faithful, even when Moses is waffling and faithless and fickle. What a mercy that God would give Moses that tangible sign and token and reminder. God does claim all of you. He says to Moses, he says to us. But as he sends you in his service, dear friends, he also promises not merely to send you out on some sort of suicide assignment, but he sends you with his own presence and self. He is sufficient for you. As insufficient and as inadequate and as unqualified and as incapable as you may perceive yourself to be, this passage teaches us that it wasn't ever really about you anyway. And you must trust the one who is sufficient for you. As did Moses, so must we. So that's the first thing to see here. Gospel allegiance is a total life claim. Then secondly, let's look at this perplexing little story in verses 24, 25, and 26. Here we see that allegiance to God, not only is it a total life claim, but it's a matter of life and death. Now, commentators have a field day with sections like this. Endless volumes and conjectures have been penned about this vexing section of sentences. Moses, now he's on his way. He's finally obeying. He's journeying to Egypt. He's doing the right thing. Somewhere along the way, he stops at a lodging place, and God comes to meet him again. But this time, it's not for encouragement or prodding the way God has met Moses before. This time, when God seeks to meet him, he seeks to kill him. Moses is going in obedience to God's call in his life, and suddenly, without warning, he finds himself standing under the divine wrath and death sentence. What's going on? Well, look at the text. Zipporah. His Midianite, his non-Hebrew wife, mind you, she certainly seems to know, doesn't she? Apparently, one of Moses' two sons was uncircumcised. Circumcision was, of course, the sign of God's covenant in the Old Testament. The sign of belonging to the people of God had not yet been given to this son. The sign of belonging to the people of God had not yet been given to one of Moses' sons. Now, perhaps Moses and Zipporah had always intended to get around to it. You might imagine the family dynamics. We're living with my family, she says, in my town. They think this custom is strange. Infant circumcision is a Hebrew thing. It's not a Midian thing. Whatever the reason, one of their sons does not bear the emblem of the covenant promises of God. We just never got around to it. Surely God will understand. Obviously not. This should help us realize how utterly unacceptable and unthinkable is the idea that God is remembering his covenant and acting in mercy to save his people, while at the same time the servant whom he is sending to redeem his people, that that same man is acting with indifference toward the stipulations of God's covenant. It's as if 
the American soldiers that had been sent to fight the Battle of Iwo Jima, they'd gone into the battlefield, but they couldn't be bothered to bring a flag with them, much less to raise the flag in the middle of the battlefield. The point in this section is to see how utterly seriously God takes the sign of his covenant with his people. Our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 28, tells us that the neglect of this ordinance is a very great sin, speaking about the new covenant sacrament and sign of baptism. It's the sign of membership in the people of God, that outward emblem of God's promises. What circumcision was in the Old Testament, baptism is in the New Testament. And in both cases, it is a very grave thing to neglect, that outward emblem, that outward sign of belonging within the covenant community unto the people of God. Moses here is being taught, and so are we, that to play fast and loose with God's commands is a matter of life and death. To presume upon God's mercy and presume upon his patience is a matter of life and death. Now notice we said presume and not trust. We're being deliberate here. Because there is a vast chasm of difference between childlike trusting in God's mercy, even if we're not fully understanding it and fully comprehending it, yet setting our faith and trust there nonetheless. There's a vast chasm between that childlike trust in God's mercy and an arrogant presumption upon God's mercy, an arrogant presumption upon God's grace. And so Zipporah, realizing the seriousness of this situation, she springs to action. She performs emergency surgery, she circumcises her son, and she takes the bloody flesh and skin that she's just removed, and she touches Moses' feet with them. Now, one commentator suggests that this seems to have been a way to identify Moses with her action, a kind of vicarious act, as if she were saying, I want this to be considered as the fulfillment of Moses' obligation to the covenant so that Moses might live. And then she gives this really strange declaration. You are a bridegroom of blood to me. Truth be told, we're not really entirely sure what she meant. Is she horrified that she's been put in this position? That she must conduct this bloody ritual upon her son in order to save her husband's life? Perhaps. It's also not necessary that we see her as angry. Sometimes when we read this text, we we read it with sort of a, a frustrated, arrogant intonation. You are a bridegroom of blood to me. Maybe. But it could also just be one of a covenant declaration. You are a bridegroom of blood to me. Blood meaning without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. Blood meaning a symbol of God's covenant mercies towards his people. It may be that this is the moment where Zipporah as an outsider realizes that actually she belongs. She is a part of the covenant people of God. It may be that this is sort of an epiphany moment for her. She's been in Midian. She's been living in her father's household. Maybe she always thought of herself as not really part of the Hebrews and the God's covenant people. Maybe this is the the moment of it dawning upon her that she really does belong. That Moses being a bridegroom of blood to her, this bloody ritual speaks to that. That this covenant people is her covenant people. And those covenant promises from Moses' God belong to her as well. It's not entirely clear what she means. But what is clear is that her action saves her husband's life. Their son receives the sign of the covenant... And the blood that is placed upon Moses delivers Moses from death. That is a preview of things to come. Hebrew narrative, Old Testament narrative, loves to do this. Old Testament narrative loves to give us a little mini preview 
of future events and themes. What was Moses born to do? He was born to slay Egyptians and save Israelites. Early in his life, what do we find Moses doing? He slays that Egyptian taskmaster and he rescues the Hebrew slave. Later on in his life, redeems 600,000 plus of the Hebrew people while countless Egyptians are slain in the wake of the plagues and the Red Sea. Happens in miniature, fuller picture later on. Well, here we have another such preview. This points us to Exodus chapter 12 on the terrible night of the Passover. The same Hebrew... (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Excuse me. That same Hebrew word is used here. Zipporah touching Moses' feet. That same word is used in Exodus 12 for the dabbing of blood on the doorposts and on the lintel. (coughs) You see, blood is shed again. And those upon whom that blood is applied and spared, are spared the wrath and curse of God. That's no accident. Touching Moses, dabbing Moses' feet with the blood so that death passes over him. Touching the doorpost and the lintel with that blood of the Passover lamb so that the death curse passes over the Hebrew people. That is no accident that that word is employed here deliberately in Exodus 4 and again in Exodus 12. Exodus 4 points to Exodus 12, but Exodus 12 points beyond itself, doesn't it? to other blood that was shed. Exodus 4 drives us ultimately to the gospel of Christ. Blood is shed and applied, and the one to whom it is applied is rescued from the wrath of God. That's the gospel message, isn't it? From beginning to end in Old Testament and New, the only means of escape from judgment for disobedience to the commands of God is through the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4, verse 10. The blood sacrifice that satisfies divine wrath. God's servants, all of them, all of them are fallen, they are frail, they are fickle, they are fallible, they are full of sin, and they are in desperate need of cleansing and forgiveness. And the good news is that there is cleansing And there is mercy for you in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Moses saw this only in type and in shadow and in part. You, servant of God, see it in fullness in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So allegiance to God is a total life claim. Allegiance to God is a matter of life and death. And then thirdly and very briefly, we see something of the surprising fruits of faithfulness. Moses has been struggling, stumbling, coming, his obedience coming in spits and furts. What happens then when his servants finally do what he says? When wills are bent into submission? Well, what happened with Moses? God sends Aaron to Mount Sinai to wait for him. When Moses arrives, he shares all that God has told him, and together they head back to Egypt to do their assigned work. They gather the elders of Israel together. Verse 19, Aaron spoke all the words Moses gave him. The signs are performed for all to see. And then look at verse 31. The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. The surprising fruits of faithfulness. We say surprising not because God's character is surprising. It's entirely dependable. But he is always faithful to his promises. But we, as thick-headed as we are, God's servants are the ones who are surprised. We're always surprised, aren't we? We're always surprised when God does what he's actually promised to do. 
I love how one commentator summarizes it. Everything went according to promise. It's worth noticing how little space the Bible devotes to the meeting with the elders, especially when this is compared with the amount of time the text devotes to Moses worrying about the meeting beforehand. The prophet's fears, Moses' fears, turned out to be ill-founded, as fears always are when they come from a failure to trust God's word. Often, the real struggle comes at the point of deciding whether or not to follow God. Once the decision has been made to follow him, everything falls into place, and we are able to glorify God almost as a matter of course, close quote. Exodus 4, you notice, ends on a note of doxology with the elders of Israel worshiping God, praising him for what's about to transpire Even while they're still yet in the bonds of slavery, they're not even liberated yet, and they're praising God for what's about to happen. See, ordinarily, ordinarily, when God's servants do what God calls them to do, God blesses their labors. People believe, and people worship. Faithfulness and fruitfulness ordinarily go together. God is pleased to work by his servants who are pleased to obey him. This isn't legalism. This is simple biblical discipleship with which fruitfulness comes as a blessing. Allegiance to the Lord is a total life claim. And to trifle with his commands is disastrous. But at the same time, fruit, the fruit of faithful service is sweet and pleasant and good. And it is endowed with heavenly delight. When we do what God asks us to do, brothers and sisters, he will bless it. And and, and as incomprehensible as it may seem, the great message of Scripture is that God is pleased to use means and he is pleased to use people. He is pleased to use me and you. Ordinarily, your faithfulness will produce fruitfulness in your lives and in the lives of others. God is pleased to use fearful, doubting saints to accomplish his kingdom and his covenant agenda. He doesn't call for your efforts to be without flaw for your lips to be without stammer, or for your striving to be without stumbling. He doesn't call for impeccable perfection in all of your doings. He calls for you to be faithful. May the Lord be gracious to us. And let's put our hand to the plow, shall we, brothers and sisters? Let's put our hand to the plow obediently, doing the tasks that the Lord has put before us, against all odds, and let's simply trust him with the results. God is pleased to bring fruit from his servants' faithful obedience to his glory. God calls you to simple, ordinary, plain, sometimes even unremarkable and uncelebrated faithfulness. Do you believe that, Christian? Do you believe that he'll bless it? Let's trust him. Shall we pray? Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for this, your word. Help us, as the old gospel song says, to trust and obey because there's no other way for us to be faithfully loving and serving you. Help us to do that very thing. Help us to give our hearts and our minds and our loves over to total allegiance and full surrender to our Lord and King, heeding his word and his commands and trusting you to do all things well. Impress your word upon our hearts this day. And all for the sake of Jesus Christ we ask it. Amen.